Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. And joining me today is friend of the show, Bryce from Darker Days Radio. Bryce, how you doing? And didn't Darker Days Radio recently celebrate an anniversary or milestone of some sort? I'm doing great, Terry. Yeah, we recently ordered a uh, big anniversary show. We got one of the original hosts who hadn't been on for literally, I don't know, a maybe a decade at this point. We hit 13 years. We had our anniversary show. It was fantastic. Had a wonderful time. And uh, we're looking forward to the next 13 years. Yeah, I recently <laughs> realized that we have overtaken you and raw number of episodes, but certainly not in terms of total duration. And now I feel like a big boy in the podcast space. Uh, you made it, kid. Yeah, it was 210 <laughs> episodes. Hooray. Sometimes people are like, how did you do it? You've done 200 episodes about Mage. I'm like, yeah, thanks. They're like, no. This is not, <laughs> this is not, not like, healthy, man. Yeah, it's exactly. not for you. <laughs> I had a colleague at my previous workplace. I brought in a baked good every week. And there was another person that brought in like cakes and pies, but only for people's birthdays. And after like five years of doing that, this other person got like a, a bassinet full of baking ingredients, like fancy pants chocolate and really nice tins. And I'm like, I've been doing it more for longer. Why is this person getting it? And a colleague is like, Terry, you have done it with such metronomic consistency that we assume that you simply have a compulsion. And if anything, <laughs> you owe us something for being the audience that allows you to express this. And I'm like, that's surprisingly accurate. So that, that tracks, yeah. Yeah. When I think about compulsive repetitive actions that the person has no clue as to the underlying reason to towards cosmic knowledge, I think of Trail of Cthulhu. Bryce and I are going to discuss two things. One, the Cthulhu mythos and kind of the corona around it and the game Trail of Cthulhu. We've talked about cosmicism before. We've talked about having big things in your game and the universe not caring, but we haven't really talked about like Cthulhu proper. And we're going to dive in by talking about the game Trail of Cthulhu. Uh, Bryce, what is Trail of Cthulhu? Have you played it? Trail of Cthulhu, which I have played, is a role-playing game from Pelgrim Press based on the Cthulhu mythos by H.P. Lovecraft and others, mostly others by volume. And it is a story of solving mysteries with a dark supernatural bent. And kind of the notable thing to me about the... Trail of Cthulhu games and the associated ones. I just got done reading Cthulhu City, which I hope to run at some point. And then there's Cthulhu Apocalypse and then there's Cthulhu Confidential. Is they're all powered by the gumshoe engine. And the gumshoe engine is interesting in that it doesn't have nearly as many dice rolls. It is an investigative system where it says, hey, if you're a character in the spot and you have the skill and you say you're using the skill, and there's a clue tied to the skill, the storyteller, or in this case, the keeper, just gives it to you. So if you have ballistics as one of your investigative skills, and you say, I want to look at the gunshot pattern to see if there's anything there, there is no perception check, there is no role to see if you notice it in the first place, the person in charge, the storyteller or the keeper, just gives you the darn clue. Now, there is a point system whereby you can spend a point in ballistics to get additional information that may be useful, but the basic clue will always be handed to you. The whole idea is to design a story around a clue spine, which is to say to have this network of clues that if the characters are simply in the right place and have the right skills, they will eventually get all the pieces. And kind of the key idea 
idea is the fun is not finding the clues so much as the fun is piecing the clues together. Kind of another thing that the game recommends, and this is a rule that kind of comes from Robin Laws, is the idea that no one likes playing the game of guess what the storyteller is thinking. So one of the recommendations is that all once the characters have all the clues, all answers that fit with all of those clues are valid answers. And once the players choose or hit on one of those, ta-da, that's the mystery that you have solved it. Right. It's real boring in a game when there's a mystery or there's anything that depends on a die roll that you can fail and then everything stops. So whether it's a perception check to see, you know, the muddy footprints or it's an investigation role to learn that the shooter was standing in the window instead of in the doorway. If you can't get the clues, then it just grinds to a halt or eventually the storyteller or GM or keeper or what have you gives up on the die rolls and says, here, here's the clue that you needed anyway. I'm going to give it to you in the end. So this just kind of bypasses that whole first failure as an option setup and says, all right, you get the clues. Here you go. Now, like you said, just getting the clues is great. But if you if you spend your your resources on them, you can learn more things. You can learn that, you know, the, the gunshot pattern indicates that it was a left-handed shooter. So that eliminates most of the suspects or the weird icker that you found turns out to be, you know, have some fish DNA in it. So, hey, maybe it's a deep one we're looking for. Who knows? Yeah, it's it's a real elegant system. It makes it the investigation, the game, not the finding the clues. And the game also gives a bunch of other recommendations, and we may do a how-to investigative episode at some point. Uh, Bryce and I did one on action-adventure games in Mage. We may do one on, on kind of detective stories. It allows the characters to feel like badasses, because if you have a dot in that or a point in it, you just you just know the stuff. That, that's exactly it. It assumes that your characters are competent which is something that, that you don't see in every game. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the, the, refreshing. Quite simply, there is no botch system or anything similar to that. In fact, the game in many places also has a system that says for a number of tasks, you have two options when you roll. You either succeed or succeed with a complication. There is no failure as an option. The gumshoe system includes a wide range of games. I think one of my favorite single sentence pitches for a game is Knights Black Agents, which is Jason Bourne versus Dracula. That's hard to beat as a concept, but in this case we are talking about Trail of Cthulhu, which is set in the 30s and 40s, and has extensive historical research to it because Ken Hyde did it. Let's not, let's call a spade a spade here. There are a bunch of other storytelling techniques it recommends. Uh, one is kind of how to arrange your clues. One is core clues. They are the necessary clues you need to just get through the darn story. That if that chain is broken, you will need to do some work to kind of keep the mystery going. Another is the idea of floating clues, that a lot of information, forensics reports, or information from a contact can really come in any time. And they are ways to keep cadence going. Another one is the idea of piping, which is the idea that you lay down pipe for future use. You may need to give clues early on that don't actually make sense until later, but really get the players kind of minds going. System-wise, it also recommends a few other things like not spending all of your character creation points and just saying, hey, if the group finds out in this particular story that they need someone with a background in archaeology or anthropology, sure, add that in later. 
turns out I took a class of that. Exactly. Or you pick linguistics and you don't specify the language. And I think that is remarkably reasonable. They also cap starting abilities. So this is something that some games do where it basically says, hey, if your game is going to constantly involve this, you should really prevent characters from having more than three points in it. Or in the uh, World of Darkness example, more than three dots. If a game is going to be a round chantry politics, cap chantry politics as a secondary ability at two or three points. It gives them space to grow and doesn't allow them to just power through it. Or let them buy it for more for more than the, the base cost. Yeah. If, you, if you really want to be the most politically politic in the whole chantry, you can do that, but you're going to be it's a real one-trick yeah. pony. Otherwise, the gumshoe games seem to be well-received. There's an exceptional number of books that include plots and stories. Esoterrorists is probably one of the ones that best applies to Mage, which is a game where there are creatures that are breaking through a barrier between our reality and some dark, terrible reality, and you need to investigate it. It's pretty fascinating. It is the kind of one of the more contemporary ones. It is also unstuck from a particular mythos. It's not tied to Dracula or Cthulhu, and I may do an episode of that at some point. Do you have a favorite gumshoe game? I love the the mythology of esoterrorists, but I think my favorite is actually Bubblegum Shoe, mm. which is the uh, the plucky teen investigators. Mm-hmm. It's just fun. <laughs> I like being Scooby-Doo sometimes. Yeah, and you're competent and you get through and usually there's a fight at the end. So right. it's 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 pretty good at making that happen. So the other half of what we, and, and links to those games will be in the show notes if you're curious on more. If you would also like more information on any of these games, they are extensively covered in Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, probably one of my favorite RPG podcasts. It is annoying how much Ken and Robin know about the business craft and history of tabletop role-playing games and everything else i always <laughs> learn something when i listen to their their weekly podcast and they've been doing it for years too and i don't know how i don't know where they find the time <laughs> so back to the kind of other topic that we're going to discuss the mythos bryce to you what is the cthulhu mythos the Cthulhu mythos is a sprawling multiple author shared world shared universe set of stories about cosmic entities that don't mean humanity any harm it's not like they're godzilla but they don't mean us any harm because they don't even consider us or they're not immoral they're amoral actors we do not matter to them nothing humanity ever does will ever match the least thing that they can do so our place in the universe is completely bottom tier and we will never be able to take even a step up that ladder. It is one of those things where if we did, we would be fundamentally something different. We would lose our humanity in the process. There are frequent mentions of mythos entities being galactic scale. And even in Mage, we have nothing that even suggests entities or beings that operate kind of at that scale of power, especially in a setting uh, notionally where God has stepped away. So Maybe, maybe some of the greater Incarna, maybe. Maybe Gaia or the Weaver or, you know, one of those big werewolf spirits but even then not so much because they're still planetary yeah well they're well they're also seen through a human lens mm-hmm. so you can you can think about them you can think of the weaver as a giant spider you can think of gaia as a mother who cares about her children you really can't contemplate any of the the mythos entities like that yeah it kind of when thinking about the mythos to me it is important to consider two parts one the act of the mythos which is to say a bunch of writers semi-collaborated or have contributed 
to it. There are kind of a, cute, a few key figures that have enabled that. This is an interesting case because different people have different interpretations of uh, the setting elements. H.P. Lovecraft himself never intended on it being like this large integrated thing necessarily and just referred to it as Yogg-Sothery. Yogg-Sothery. Thank you. I was missing you. a syllable. <laughs> um, and after Howard Philip Lovecraft's death, other authors started adding elements and interpretations. August Derleth mapped entities to the elements. Uh, Henry Kuttner and Clark Ashton Smith added new beings and so on. Others, people just inevitably connected it to previous weird fiction authors, whether it be Lord Dunsany or Ambrose Bierce or Robert Chambers, S.T. Joshi and Robert Price are uh, two critics and commenters that have spent a lot of time on the mythos from a uh, historical and, and critical angle and, and links to that will also be in the show notes. The mythos itself is almost an RPG if you define an RPG as interactive and iterative world building. I mean, to me, I think mage players can be encouraged that even when H.P. Lovecraft was around, he encouraged people to kind of mess around with it and add stuff to it. Uh, his letters are extensive. His focus was on themes, not on having a canon. The mythos originated by a very flawed, scared, and hateful person. They're... I, don't have another way of describing Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, and even his contemporaries were like, dude, that's a bit much. But to me, it's also a triumph of our ability to separate the art from the artist. The number of subversions, send-ups, parodies, commentaries, dissections of it that have come out of it at this par, to me, make it feel like it is a, a net enriching of, of the landscape. Uh, it is a kind of truly American addition to folklore. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's really I would be shocked if there's anybody who's listening to to your podcast or my podcast or most nerd podcasts who couldn't see, you know, a picture or a little plushy or whatever, uh, an image of Cthulhu and not recognize it. Any other thoughts on the mythos as a whole? <laughs> I think that old HP would be revolving in his coffin if <laughs> if he heard some of the the takes on the mythos. But no, that that pretty much uh, covers it. It's like you said, it's it's broad, it's deep, it's contradictory. But the guy who made it made it to be contradictory because I mean, real world mythology isn't always straight on, you know, not contradictory. It's not always self self reinforcing. I mean, even even if you look in you know the Bible, there's Genesis 1 is a creation story. Genesis 2 is a different creation, creation story. story. Why we bother for, you know, continuity and clarity and, and this fake made up, you know, mythos that we that we have here. Two of the mechanics that come up in a lot of games that include the mythos are an idea of sanity and stability. Sanity is a mechanic that is the ability to embrace the convenient lie of our existence. The idea being as your sanity drops, you become more aware of of the nature of the cosmos and how utterly uncaring it is towards us. Most Cthulhu-based games, flavored games, mythos-flavored games have sanity. The big innovation of Trail of Cthulhu was that it added stability. And also, I think you're confusing cause and effect there. As you become more familiar with humanity's place in the universe, you realize that it is nothing and so your sanity begins to drop. Not your sanity begins to drop and then you realize. As Bryce said, the other half of that is stability, which is the ability to hold it together. A, a functional but otherwise crazy wizard has high stability and low sanity. I'll 
wizards tend to be low sanity, especially in these games. This is something we can kind of take into the world of darkness if you want to, as kind of a degree to which someone is uh, hip to what is happening in the night, even if the implications aren't quite as mind-shattering. Having a, a Cthulhu mythos-flavored paradigm in Mage would be just the absolute worst. <laughs> What is it? Nihilism's one thing, but this is this is a step beyond that. Sometimes mm. the uh, the mythos worshippers are the only people in the group that look at the exes within the fondi who are like, and they're like, hold my beer. Um, so it's <laughs> <laughs> always good to have that. So now let's kind of talk about the entities themselves. First off, some commonalities. This was a list that I think Robin Laws came up with, and uh, the link to this will be in the show notes as well, when they were trying to, on Ken and Robin talk about stuff, come up with their own mythos en- entity from, from First Principles. Great um, set of episodes. Yes. And they are the idea of cosmic scale. They are influential across vast reaches of time and space. They are anthro-decentralizing, which is a, uh, a gloriously academic term of they do not care who we are or our actions. They may still be worshipped, but such worship is usually more transactional or formulaic than conventional prayer. My favorite description of worshipping a mythos entity is imagine that you, the listener, are you the listener, and you're, you're going about your daily business, and suddenly an ant starts talking to you, a, a little, little, little ant crawling on the ground looks up to you and starts talking to you and says, please, please, I want to gain the attention of this other ant in my hive. You can't tell the other ants apart. They all look the same to you. They're just ants. So to get just these two alone together, you might just destroy the entire hive and leave just the two of them left to do whatever they want. That is worshiping a mythos entity. They may answer you and they may even give you what you asked for but it will not be in the way that you had hoped and at the end of it you will be left broken and ruined and it is not when you say in the way that you had hoped it is not like getting a wish from a jinn where they're like ah i'm going to follow the letter of the request it is the fact that you do not have a frame of reference to speak ant you do not understand the references to the ant world and you operate on such a fundamentally different scale as the ant that any attempt at figuring out, at interpreting the ant's request would be non-trivial to say the least. So to, to add a thing, not only do you get this request from the ant, but you're also late to work. So you, right. you are trying right. to find a way to hurriedly attend to this because, hey, an ant reached out to you i always enjoy the uh the ant summoning a human comparison like where a bunch of circle of ants spell your name and you're like well this is interesting <laughs> I mean, you're gonna check it out <laughs> yeah and at a critical point you're like maybe i don't like this many ants being in my house and uh yeah the the ants realized that maybe spelling your name was not the good thing which is another theme of the cthulhu mythos that contacting them is kind of the root of your demise and possibly all of ours they tend to defy description they are mix of impossible or incongruous things which works literally pretty well artist renditions of it are pretty fascinating to me as they're like well this is literally everything that they've ever been described as let's jam it together it is a case where i think words often do better than art they have a pliable concept of paradoxical unease they upend normal notions of things. Shub Nigirath changes fertility to cancer and Sathagua is both hunger and sloth. So they tend to have a difficult 
to pronounce or inhuman name. And kind of an additional codicil I'll add is over time they have accrued multiple interpretations, which adds breath. You can look to the Lovecraftian definition or another author who may have had different intents to it. Uh, one of the things I love about Trail of Cthulhu, which inspired some of the descriptors we're going to do, is every entity in there has four or five options for what it is. They're all super fun. There, it's never anything like, you know, yep, this guy, he's a big fish. It's never anything boring like that. Yeah. So I picked a few entities that I thought were interesting that I think would fit into Mage. It is a mix of those who are kind of core to the mythos and those that have just kind of gotten broad acceptance. In Trail of Cthulhu, there is actually two little icons that were occur throughout the book. One is the purist symbol, which says, hey, if you want to make an HP Lovecraft story, these are the eight gods that can appear. Also, your characters will probably die. There is no character advancement. <laughs> and certain systems in the game are going to be more punishing. There is also a pulp option, which said, ah, go nuts, <laughs> which I like they're, as an idea. They're both fun options. I'm not a Lovecraft purist by any means. I, I like a lot of the uh, mythos entities that were created by other authors, both during and after his lifetime. And yeah, let's uh, let's get to some entities. Uh, so Bryce, who's Azathoth? Azathoth is the nuclear chaos, the, the dread sultan. It may or may not actually exist in Trail of Cthulhu, but if it does, it may be the personification of atomic energy or a trapped titan or the deific representation of nihilism. Or it might be a mindless god of pure want. It just sits at the center of reality and it wants more and more of everything. It's mindless, so it doesn't know what to do with anything once it has it, but it wants. It wants to devour, it wants to own, it wants to possess. And this strikes me as a being whose mere drop of it could be the urge worm of consumption. Azathos may be briefly visible when Premium was created for the first time as a distillation of order and power. It may be a being that blesses the greatest plans of the Exes. It may represent the sum total of mathematics and the infinite possibility of space to hold matter. Do you have any thoughts of Azathoth and Mage? <laughs> It may be the floating corpse of the one at the center of reality, the one that, you know, exploded and created all of the avatars. Mm -hmm. It may not exist. It may be ancient man's or ancient entity's description of, you know, the black hole at the center of the universe that will eventually suck everything in and destroy it. It is the embodiment of the big crush. It is the philosophical entity that enough people have thought about that ultimate destruction as to bring it into existence. And we have a whole section later on like what they could be to make it fit with the mage cosmology that we have so far. How about Cthulhu? Well, Cthulhu is probably just a giant squid-headed dude on a sunken island in the Pacific. Or if you listen to August Derleth, he could be the personification of water, which makes sense as he is trapped at the bottom of the ocean where you can't get to water. Derleth is not a good author. Uh, he may represent uh, gravity, you know, the, the force of gravity in, in uh, the world. He might be just a big alien who came to Earth millennia ago 
with his star spawn and then fell asleep with his ilk. You know, that's it's just a, a regular cycle. He's he's ta- he's taking a nap right now. He could be the biggest cleric of the other gods. He's described as the the high priest of the mythos in some some stories. Lots of fun with Cthulhu. Most recognizable, possibly the. M- second most anthropomorphized of the uh the mythos entities yeah cthulhu is sometimes described as having a job and doing stuff and is also taken out by a steamer ship making cthulhu bludgeoned successfully by a steamer ship Um, now that 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 has been retconned sir in call of cthulhu that was just him sending up a little psychic entity made out of protoplasm that got hit by a giant boat and popped and it fell back to, and he was like, Oh, okay. Dumb dream. And he went back to sleep. Cthulhu could be a Ur entity that represents a fifth or sixth avatar essence that some people are drawn to the distant spirit that represents the merging together of all questing avatars. He could be the entity tied to thalassophobia, uh, humanity's fear of water and the seas, but also the compulsion to explore it could be the representation of the border between time, space, and matter, or matter and energy through the the representation of gravity. Uh, Cthulhu may be the advanced guard of whatever shook up and maybe is behind the disruption of the cop that has occurred twice now in mage history. The vanguard one time being done by the Nefandi, the second time being done during the week of nightmares. Cthulhu is also an interesting character in that it is the most broadly known, so I could very much see a syndicate member slowly falling to corruption from it being the most commercializable of the mythos entities, I would say. I also like that traditionally Cthulhu affects artists and dreamers. So as a big Changeling fan that, you know, jumps right out at me, he could be one of the uh, the green court of the Fomori, some primordial entities, dark dream that's searching for new dreamers here in reality, could be infecting the mind sphere with his, you know, corruption and his want to turn humanity against itself who or what is dagon dagon is a giant fish frogman or possibly an ancient syrian god of corn or maybe the being who brought civilization to humanity six thousand years ago or maybe one of the aforementioned uh, cthulhu spawn remember earlier when i said they're not all just they're not just big fish swimming around you like to eat mm-hmm. he's kind of he's kind of a big fish he swims around and likes to eat he, he's got you know a whole bunch of little little babies babies of him with mother hydra so dagon brings us the deep ones right the the right. human exactly. other hybrids i like the idea that dagon could be the weaver and that the deep ones are just an attempt to create to force humanity into a state of biological uniformity that dagon can then control i think that's kind of cooler than there being a giant spider like if we talk about the worm being fallen i like the idea of there being a fallen weaver and that's dagon fish are terrifying Uh, and delicious yeah dagon could represent the dark desire to explore or the desire to strangely crossbreed one of the things in esoterrorists as a concept is one of the motives given for characters as to why they're summoning dark outer beings is listed as uh, xeno fetishism which is not a word I anticipated uh, picking up in an RPG book, but I'm glad I now know. (laughs) 
I may cut out the usage of the word glad there. Yeah, I think I think we we all understand that as soon as humanity discovers intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, the first question will be, are they going to kill us? And the second question will be, how are they in bed? Yeah. <laughs> so what are you doing later? Yeah. Um, <laughs> who or what is Haster? Haster is an octopoid great old one who lives near the star Aldebaran in the constellation Taurus in the lake of Holly. Or it's possibly he is a sentient meme of alienation, ennui, and despair who manifests as the king in yellow from the eponymous play. And to me, I like the idea of the great old ones being at war or the outer gods or these mythos entities kind of being at war with the Nefandi, that the walk through the call represents just one kind of seeding the self-insanity and that Haster, through artist and inspiration, is trying to lead people to some other thing, to taint their avatars in some other ways, to discover a nihilism beyond nihilism. (laughs) What that is, I will not describe, but I can come up with enough flowery language that people will be like, ooh. But certainly not enough to produce a player's guide. Um, How mechanically would that differ from a Nefandus, though? So mechanically, to me, it would represent itself as the inversion of the Avatar would be different. Uh, To me, it would be a weird... and this is something I actually have listed for a Thakwa. We get the idea that stepping through the calls merges your Avatar with kind of dark energies. And the way that affects the Nefandi is kind of narrow. And I think if we do that with the mythos, we have a space for like kind of a a weirder set of calls. They are all looking to claim as many avatars or souls as they will, as possible. So kind of get into the interpretation section. Also, the fact that we don't actually get mechanics for there being any real benefits to going through the calls. So I like the idea that once you have been touched by one of these entities, you now have the ability to trade to gain a retail for a point of quiet. If you want to pledge yourself to these to one of these entities, increase your retail by one, your quiet can now never go below two. Quiet mm. is inflected by, by what this being is. Or you have the ability to draw on a certain amount of automatic quintessence, but things outside of that you can no longer touch. You would no longer be able to use quintessence that came from a glen or a node or something like that, or things that would fit outside of the purview of whatever dark thing you handed it over to. Very um, much a, a, a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. To me, Haster, in the idea of ennui and art, seems like a thing that could draw to hollowers in a way that I think is more interesting in a lot of ways than just kind of the Nefandi. Like, it seems overly dramatic for them to go Barabbai and just be like, F everything, but to be drawn into impossible art and to find out things are meaningless except through the lens of the king in yellow i think is a little bit more interesting in some ways if you're comfortable using a pop culture touchstone absolutely yeah i can definitely see a whole group of hollow ones trying to find and then stage the play that brings pastor the king in yellow into reality just utterly destroying themselves and anybody in the audience along with them that's Mm. that's fantastic yeah (laughs) 
And this already has precedent in Mage. The red sign includes the yellow sign as one of the precursors. So the Vampire Mage crossover book, crossover is kind of in quotes there, already makes mention of the king in yellow or being out there or the yellow sign being something that mages can construct. I'll put that in the show notes. Please see that book for more information or our review of it. It basically posits that the actual play, The King in Yellow, is kind of a tome that allows for a very specific effect that changes its participants. Uh, That book also does a pretty good job, actually, of explaining high ritual as a practice where your goal is to act out certain archetypes. High ritual is not just an extended hard thing where you get a bunch of people to do a bunch of things, but uh, apparently something more narrow. What's a Thakwa? Ithaqua, the Windwalker, the spirit of cold hunger in the northern wastes. Or maybe he's the embodiment of thermodynamic decay. Or, again, according to some horrible authors, just an air elemental, you know, just a a guy who he's the wind, but he's kind of (laughs) creepy. Yeah. Uh He's a real interesting entity. Um, There's not a lot of Ithaca stories. I have a, I have a book of them and it's a really slim tome, but if you're a changing fan like me, he's the biggest red cap. Athaqua to me is a, or Ithaqua again, I, Thing there, that I there's, heard. there is, yeah. there is no set pronunciation for any of these things, and I'm sure that uh, when we get to the next one, it'll be super great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's no set pronunciation. It's all written down and you know word of mouth, so don't worry about mispronouncing it. It's not; they're not meant to be pronounced by mouths that have fewer than four tentacles. Yeah. So. <laughs> to me, this is a character that a spirit that void engineers make agreements with to survive the vacuum of space or other harsh impossible environments or progenitors who wish to create biologically impossible entities. Uh, Athaqua is listed as being miles tall and walking on lumbering strange limbs. To me, they could be a target of devotion for time and entropy effects to control the outcomes of events, the cascade of probabilities being the many teeth that circle their maw of inevitability. This is a god of those who seek solipsism and apotheosis through loneliness of self-deification through removing all other possible wills and in kind of blasted void finding ascension. That's a descriptor that would actually apply to a couple of them, but I didn't have a lot else to to go with for a (laughs) Thakwa. Not Uh, a lot there. And to me, potential source for very high levels of arcane. We don't have examples of spirit patrons that can give you arcane five, six, or seven. And I think this would be a fantastic nemesis for the Alibatine in a game where you kind of decentered fight between them and the Nefandi because it's one of those things that's kind of frequently mentioned, but the tools and stuff aren't quite there. So it's kind of another alternative to me. Yeah, I think we don't have a lot of those entities because they're difficult to find. Yeah. <laughs> Narlathotep. Narlathotep, the crawling chaos, the faceless god of a thousand masks, the ebon-skinned, goat-hoofed devil at the center of the witch cults, which or could be the messenger or soul of the other gods or specifically Azathoth. This, this, this entire entity, this, this being of tremendous power, which is as previously hinted, the most anthropomorphized mythos entity could be just the avatar of the least anthropomorphic entity. 
I could see this as being a entity that empowers those who change identities, that they are not factoring in new ones, but they have access to the thousand faces. Each one grants different boons and banes. Um, Speaking of the Aliba team. Yeah. Or NWO operatives that feel that they are dipping into the universal unconsciousness or something. It's not actually that. They are dipping into the manifold identities of Nyarlathotep. Or maybe that's the same thing. Yeah. The entirety of the dreaming, for instance, can just be one of the thoughts of one of these entities. I like the idea that the the mythos entities are so powerful that the mere act of trying to communicate between them brought Nyarlathotep into existence that it is a manifestation of a single attempt at communicating between these. And that kind of gives you an idea of how how big it is. Like when a human says something like we generate a puff of air, but when uh, mythos entities want to communicate, they generate another mythos entity that is also the, the crawling chaos. The I view them as the great intermediary that if we posit a hierarchy of spirits and in Mage, where you have something like Celestines and Incarna at the top, the idea that a Celestine is merely a messenger, the greatest of all seraphs, the only entity through which one can actually communicate with the mythos in anything approaching a human way. They are all communication. They are the universal translator. They are the foundation of ours cupididae, that they are the interface of communication and want as a subservient entity, possibly to Azathoth. You got some angles. He's all things to all people. <laughs> a lot of things to a lot of people. All yeah, is not, a little not, bit too much. Yeah. Not, not, not a lot of good things. I'll, yeah. I'll grant you yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Shubnigarath, the black goat of the woods with a thousand young. This is the goddess, and it's, it's usually... This one is usually described as female, more than more than male or more than agender. The goddess of fertility and fecundity, always pregnant, always giving birth, or maybe a tremendous spirit of the wild, or perhaps ancient humanity's misunderstanding of crossbreeding between man and mythos creatures. There's a lot of that in the, the, the mythos where there's entities that are definitely not human and there are entities that are human and then there are entities that are what happen when they meet and one of the things i like is the idea that we can find space for the mythos without trampling on necessarily all of human culture by positing that these are entities that are at the interface of things so i like the idea that shubnigarath is the combination of decay and is the combination of entropy and dynamism, this continuous cancerous generation of malformed and broken things. They could be the true Lilith, the infinite creator of infinite creations. They could represent all of evolution. They could be the, the mimetic ideal at the center of that, of which biology is one mere emergent of it. They are the origin of the paradigm, we are not men, which is introduced in the Book of Secrets. It's like, nope, we're aliens, we got superpowers. And this gives you kind of a, uh, a darker embodiment of that. I could see this being someone that is kind of a demonic pathway into something that looks like the biological version of the digital web, that mad progenitors or verbena of a particularly technological um, bent explore. Again, these entities are so large that it is not unreasonable to be like, yeah, Haster is all of human art or something like that. And you're like, yeah, that kind of works. <laughs> um, <Sure>. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So what is Sathagua? 
Sathagua, which is part toad, part bat, all god of sorcerers and magicians, or an earth elemental, or the manifestation of the strong nuclear force, or maybe a god of hidden and forbidden knowledge. Sathagua is another one of those creatures or entities that doesn't get a lot of press, you know, compared to some of the others. But when they do, they're they're all about holding things together, hoarding things, keeping things, secrets, knowledge, vast treasures in the in the underworld, all kinds of fun and exciting things like that. Yeah, I see Sathagwa as being a uh, a dark entity that maybe is worshipped in the Hollow Earth. They could be the master of esoteric forces or matter um, and give access to high levels of either. They make impossible materials possible that whenever iterators seek to create novel meta materials, they hear the dark tug of Sathagwa at the, the core of manipulating the prime elements of what it means to be material in the first place. The idea of them being this like kind of fat toad bat thing as a recurring motif, I think is a is a good way to indicate that you're like, ah, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore when it comes to your standard hermetic tomes, as it were. But yeah, I, I've always had a fondness for Sathagwa. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. It says you were a big fan of uh, hidden and or forbidden knowledge. I would a say that. Of, and then sharing a man, it with man of people. wealth and or taste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the idea of Sathagwa being particularly tied to exploration of the atom and things smaller than that. What's your Golanak? <laughs> Igalanek is a, a weird one. <laughs> it's a, a minor god of the mythos, or maybe it's an avatar of Nyarlathotep, you know, which would make it an avatar of an avatar, or it might be a sexually transmitted disease of the body and the soul, or it might be one of Shub Niggurath's spawn. Um, it could be lots of things. It's just very, very strange. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of Yagalanak being a mimetic virus that modifies avatars slightly, that whenever mages do group rituals together, if they have come in contact with this avatar virus, Yagalanak grows a little bit, and now suddenly everyone's avatar has a particular mark on it when they're doing a seeking or their avatar is in some way manifest. This could be an agent behind the hive mind of control. The entirety of the technocracy's central thing could just be a lesser expression of Yagalanak trying to spread itself throughout all thought. It could be a force pushing the NWO to create a world culture that so all of humanity can sing with one voice and summon it through eight billion mouths. It's one of those things where there's not a lot said, so you got a lot of open space. It's also one of those things where if it's an avatar of an avatar of an avatar, we're now dealing with something that like maybe a group of player characters can kind of nudge, and it goes kind of from cosmic indifference to being just merely a cosmos-spanning conspiracy of avatars. <laughs> right, and, and either way, it's going to eat you when it's finished. Yes. So, hey. Oh, yeah, but still. <laughs> You can make a heroic last stand and still fail. But anyway. And and the last one I have before we kind of open it up for anything else Bryce has for, for free-for-all is Yogg-Sothoth. Yogg-Sothoth is the key to the gate and the gate itself. Yogg-Sothoth is a god who appears as a series of bubbles that pop and reform an ever-changing configuration. A fifth-dimensional hypersphere that exists outside of, but coterminous with, all space and time. Or a god who can raise the dead. Since time has no meaning to it, he can just rewind to when you know that pile of ashes was still alive. Or the god of ether and quintessence. 
I like the idea that Yogg-Sothoth may be the only way to do permanent long-distance time travel without paradox, for they are all things in all spaces. But each time you do it, you yourself incur some of that taint passing through it. I think this is kind of the contrivance for Fate of Cthulhu, where humanity is being attacked by some sort of mythos entity, and they find out that they can travel to the past through, I think it's either Yogg-Sothoth or Adam. It's Yogg-Sothoth, yeah. Yeah. Doing that comes at tremendous cost, that you start the game tainted because of that. I like the idea that Yogg-Sothoth is the source of vistas, the bubbles that are in the near umbra that represent great future destructions. Or alternatively, their little surface nodules are what create the mirror zone and the alternate realities that you can accidentally slip into zone-wise within the umbra. Are there any other mythos entities that you are particularly fond of at the cosmic entity level like we have the idea of the hounds of tindalos and so on and the migo and, and so on but any biggins that you're particularly fond of we've covered so many i mean this gives you a nice sampler platter to pick from my favorite is yog sothoth because in the hp lovecraft pure canon he is every mage's soul Hmm. which is how they are mages. He's this big giant entity who's outside of space and time and where space and time intersect with him in all these various locations, that's where mages come from. That's how you're able to do magic because Yogg-Sothoth is is just touching reality, just the the tip of his, you know, tentacular fingers. There is an interpretation of Shubnigurath that I like that they are the only mythos entity that is native to Earth and represent all possible genetic potential. So I like the idea of a game where you're like rooting for the home team in (laughs) in the form of the Black Goat of the Woods with a thousand young and other entities are attacking or invading or trying to reach Earth because they do not have that kind of genetic possibility embedded within them in the same way that humans do. And that was one of the uh, one of the interpretations I ran into that I thought was was kind of interesting. Well, it's also canon that they come here just to mine our whatever they can't get on Pluto. Sure. Um, so we've gone through a bunch of the entities. To me, one of the key questions is, so how the dink do we use them in Mage? The first question to me is kind of one of, you have three parts. What are they? How do I tell a story with them? And what are the mechanics I use for them? And these were some of the ones I thought of, of what they are. I like the idea that the outer gods are the pure ones. Avatars are just shards of the mythos entities, and those entities are kind of what is left over. Those echoes are still out there. The fragments remain. Ascension returns bits to that Ur entity, which is why Ascension is so rare, remote, and alien. And this makes Ascension bad. (laughs) So I like to think of this as the Silent Hill answer. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with the Silent Hill. Okay, so they may have changed it since I last played. But when I started playing Silent Hill, the idea was that there's this town that is, you know, super religious. They're they're run by, you know, the local church or whatever. And they want to summon an angel to Earth Mm -hmm. to be their direct go-between with God. And the game posits that they failed. They summoned something to Earth, but it made everything twisted and warped and horrible. My interpretation was, no, no, they succeeded. They summoned an angel from, you know, from heaven above. They summoned an actual literal angel to earth. And as soon as that angel touched earth, it became corrupt because we're the bad guys in reality. (laughs) 
we are mundane. There are two lines of evidence that kind of point at this. One is the Ali Batin, where you had the the Quijad al Akbar, which I always confuse with the like with the Quisach Heterach. Um, but <laughs> same same root word, I'm sure. Yeah, that in the future humanity has figured something out. It reaches back in time and tries to touch reality and shatters. The other one is the idea that Jin are material and spirit, and humans are merely material that we are tainted and this lends a potentially gnostic interpretation where unless you ascend we we are but earth and it is tainted by a reality it is the world of darkness in ascension as a book it posits that something is wrong that only mages can change the world and it is humanity's birthright that everyone be able to do that so wait it fits a uh, kind of a dull interpretation is they're just deep umbral entities in mage we have the idea that there are things that are very far away that can be made with contact that can be contacted with odd rituals or spending quintessence or lash the crawler at the end of the worlds is probably the best known example of this that appears in precisely two places that is the book of madness and then the book of ascension being worshipped by i think what is it dr seymour glass so that's the boring one to me like yep they're out there it sucks Te- it's technically an option. Yeah. If you just if you just want them to be other spirits, sure, that's there. Go and for if it. you want the and if you want the void engineers to be fighting with them, that works. Like if you want to have your Cthulhu space war done, that posits a incredibly powerful void engineer or remarkably small mythos figures, though. If that is actually a war that can be reasonably waged, I like the idea that they are strange forms or mimetic entities. They may be the mimetic viruses or the principle of ent- uh, of entropy. Uh, one can subvert them temporarily, but to actually get rid of a myth- mythos entity would require changing the very cosmos mythos entities are waging slow wars against each other uh dagon is the creator of civilization is waging a war against the infinite variation of uh sub and uh I-, I like that that they are odd extruded embodiments of things in the game demon the fallen we get the idea that there was a previous time where things kind of hadn't settled out as much yet that you could have a sword that is quantum mechanics everything um, is true yeah and you know for certain values of truth yeah and and that the kind of the borderline between concepts was kind of rough and that the mythos entities were ones that didn't quite pan out you get the idea that the pure ones fought a war against something these could be the something and they didn't want to stay down any thoughts on like the mimetic form in incarnation of them i like it it would be very difficult to uh, implement in a game and to make gameable i guess i I can see how it could be done but it would require a very specific group and i do not have that group (laughs) (laughs) one of the simplest ones you can have though is just have the idea that there is some higher concept that has been tainted by Uh, a mythos entity that this is not how death is supposed to work or this is not how thought is supposed to be done and uh, the world of darkness is being slowly destroyed by the idea of something having been tainted at 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 a cosmic level that's almost an unknown army's interpretation of Hmm. reality yeah, the closest we get to that is Vormos, Grand Harvester of Souls, yeah. tainting necromancy, but that is only something that we get as an idea through a live journal post by Malcolm Shepard, which doesn't have a formal statement, I think, in the hierarchy of canonicity, but it's out there. <laughs> Mage does have the Shard and Shade Realms, and I think it is reasonable to tie these together. So you have the Shard Realms, which are realms that are tied to a planet, and each one is the kind of... And each mythos entity could be kind of the apex creature 
of that shard realm leading a hierarchy that exists in some distant other umbra tied to that planet whether or not it be a food chain or not and they just being kind of the head that exudes into the rest of the cosmos um similar to that is you have the shade realms which are tied to spheres um and each mythos entity could be tied to a sphere or combination of spheres and is either powered by or powers the Shade Realm, it could be the case that if you want to get Entropy 7 or 8 in your game or become an Exemplar, you kind of have to decide to double down with one of these great entities. Or in the process of doing it, that is going to be one of your your major foes. It really make, makes Masters a bit more uh, suspect, <laughs> let's say. If you have to either fight Cthulhu to be a Master of Matter or go all in with him, well, I never saw my master wrestle a squid octopus guy, so... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> they could be alternatives to the entities of the Clipoth. Um, one of my criticisms of Book of the Fallen is that it's just like, let's take Jewish mysticism and say it's real and evil. And I'm like, come on, guys, can we not? Yeah. Um, so to have these entities being discarded bits of prior attempts at creation, though... Is perfectly reasonable. We get the idea that each of the shells is ruled over by some entity, and I think each one could be easily tied to a mythos creature, and now we're no longer stepping on the toes of an actual culture. And so that kind of frees it up. You can make it evil. I don't think that we have, like, uh, a Cthulhu apologists out there too much that are like, he just misunderstood. You um, would be shocked. <laughs> if there are, they're, they're not the dominant voice. There's not a lot of them. I'm, I, don't feel, I'm, I don't feel too... Uh, too exposed to being well actually by them. Tobias Funky, there are dozens of us here. <laughs> yeah, I do. I would be pleased to see a shirt that someone had that said like Yagalanak was right or something like that. I'm not quite sure what the art going with that would be. I do like that because it implies a continuum of creation that perhaps the earth is not the apex, the pinnacle. Uh, perhaps the high umbra is not the apex or the pinnacle. Maybe it keeps going beyond that and mm -hmm mages just haven't made it past that or if they have they haven't come back to talk about it yeah you cannot both be human and be there at the same time <clears throat> so that that is a choice you kind of have to draw another simple one is each entity is a celestian most of the celestians are tied to high religious concepts or planets we do get a few other strange celestians that could head up hierarchies if you prefer to use the mage term for thing we just use the word god godhead or something similar to that we have the umbral lords and the entities above them m20 doesn't really give us a new hierarchy so i've stuck with the werewolf one that's kind of established they could be dead celestine neverborn hybrids uh neverborn hybrids of past universes or prior civilizations they're mythos entities you can make them weird <laughs> They're everything you want to be. Exactly. We also get the idea of godheads in M20 that human belief in the mythos could instantiate it. Previously, there may not have been a town called Innsmouth, but there are enough mortals who think there is that there is now one and it contains Dagon. Cthulhu is very much the center of a Cthulhu cult, but the worship of it is in the form of the cultural exchange of people talking about Cthulhu. We, so, we are helping forward the Cthulhu yeah. cult. And right I, now. I do like the idea that like the apex if there were a new ascension book written it would be basilisk versus cthulhu i <laughs> i would be here for that that is actually one of the scenarios in uh, fate of cthulhu is it yeah it's one of the one of the mythos entities that you could have been sent back to to stop and it could be one of those things that if you want to destroy it, you have to take out Arcane Press as a publishing agent and so on and destroy Pelgrane and uh, take down Chaosium. 
if you wanted to stop it at this point. I like the idea that like the greatest thing enforcing the Cthulhu mythos is like it's ambiguous copyright terms. <laughs> it's all public domain. Yes. Yep. Kind of. It's well, not all. Those, yeah. It's one of those things where it's like it's publicish domain where no one can prove it is or it isn't. And no one, there's not enough money in it to wage that kind of war. So they could also simply be misunderstood, strange entities. And there's a way to tap into it. And this, they could also have been creatures that slipped in through the null zone. They're entities that wrap other stars. They are beyond reality that manifest grand paradox and wish to reorder the cosmos. Every time you accrue paradox, you make them a little bit more powerful. Their lesser minions are paradox spirits. And instead of attacking the mage, they try and unweave the cosmos itself. You got a lot of options. Any other places you would like to see the, the mythos possibly be? I really like the they're just misunderstood as an option. Okay. I recently read a book called uh, Last Exit by Max Gladstone. Kind of touched on that topic. Recommend. So a question then becomes mechanically, how do we introduce it into our games? And one thing we have is, so what is kind of the nature of this? One of the things that comes up a lot in the Cthulhu mythos is all deep knowledge leads to the mythos. If you, if you plumb the cosmos or plumb learning far enough, you run into them. If you spend enough time in literature, you find the mad poems of someone touched by Azathoth. Enough math leaves you to the fractal dimensions inhabited by uh, of Tyndalos, and enough mind or time will have you encounter the Migo. Nesty may require getting a six-dot in ability to be a pilgrimage to talk with a mythos entity, and mortals may just run into them at some point and be uh, corrupted by them. You have the idea of what is the direction of causality? Do they cause madness or does the effect of realizing they exist cause madness? Is it just like a shift in worldview or is it mental illness? I think one of the interesting things is mages have avatars. They have already awakened. They have encountered the thing and realized that the world is much bigger. The avatar may act as insulation. You can have mages have no issue interacting with the mythos. If the major threat is the anthro-decentralizing aspect of it, mages can be like, ah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> Bring, come. Uh, I don't know that that's going to apply to most mages. All hermetics believe themselves to be the center of the universe. <laughs> so if you if you say if you you know learn that Azathoth is real and it is in fact the center of the universe, where does that leave you? That's a that's a crisis of faith. I think most hermetics would just double down on it, <laughs> honestly. But yes, yeah. Um, I mean, well, you got you got to have you got to have a bit of hubris to to be a hermetic. You yeah, gotta, you got to believe in yourself real hard. That that is the the core of it. But that's that's the point of of the sanity the sanity stat here, where you learn that no, not only are you nothing in the grand scheme of things, humanity is nothing. So they might be just anathema to mage at a fundamental level. To mage the game or to mages as a concept? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Both, either. Okay, well, I'll stop recording then. No, um, let's not do that. <laughs> yeah. I do like the idea, though, that we get to subvert the genre, that maybe you pick some some of the slightly smaller entities that operate maybe at a planetary scale. This is something the technocracy could try and take on there is certainly space for it dealing with something that is literally all space and time could be a little bit 
a little bit rough on the ego, but I do like the idea that the existence of the Avatar and the fact that you've already awakened either provides protection or false protection in the same way that the Batini consider themselves immune to the corruption of uh, of Nefandi because of the doctrine of balance. That hasn't worked out super well historically. What are you talking about? There's no such thing as a Nefandic uh, Batini. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Never. We do get the idea that powerful demons and mage are able to just provide direct access to spheres. The mythos entities could very much do that. The entities themselves could be a sphere. They are so vast that opening pathways to them or having them as a patron could provide tasks or quintessence. We have the idea in mage that you can have a totem. I kind of like the term spirit patron. That is a better term. Yeah. Or alternatively, Bryce, you wrote this in, they could be an adversarial background that you could be haunted by the mythos. That What does that mean to you? For those who haven't been around or haven't encountered them, adversarial backgrounds were introduced in, I believe, Traditions Guide, Guide to the Traditions. Mm -hmm. So you can have Mentor, which is a guy who helps you out, but you could also have uh, students who are people who come to you for, for mentoring and for assistance. You can have resources, which is great. You know, you have a house, you have a car, you have whatever. You could have debt where you owe the mob or you owe whatever to some crazy entity the spirit patron is a creature that gives you power gives you access gives you boons and all you have to do is keep up their ban you know you can't step on cockroaches if cockroach is your is your spirit patron mm -hmm. so you could have an adversarial background of that where okay sure it starts out great where you get a little bit of task or quintessence every month and you know you're you get a minus one on your arate rolls to make you know, magical handguns or what have you. But then as time goes by, they want more from you. They want, well, okay, yeah, that's great. You know, I, I gave you some tasks last week, but now I'm going to need you to, you know, sacrifice babies on this altar. One every full moon. And eventually this will this will grow to just ruin your life and drag you down and make you make you a horrible person and get you kicked out of all the cool clubs. I like the idea that the closest mechanic that we have to that's kind of baked into that is is the idea of quiet and that each month that you have one of these entities as your patron, your quiet increases by one unless you do something to placate that. You have to give them something of equal or greater value in the form of um, other people or Sathagwa requires you to destroy the magical understanding of other mages where you destroy the arete of others or cause them to go through kind of anti-seeking to placate him and you gain the knowledge from that so your magic becomes this strange mismatch of stolen paradigms and spheres from other mages that you've subdued and uh and reconsumed through sathagwa a character touched by azathoth the primordial destruction may see things not disappear over the horizon so much as be destroyed your world is filled with a constant um buzz of background entropy once something leaves your sight you do not know of its existence until it returns i wish we had stronger quiet mechanics but to me that's kind of a, a baked in thing that we could kind of run with horrifying yeah. absolutely terrifying this is not something you want to happen to you yeah but again this is something that we can certainly have npcs encounter and and kind of running throughout this is you can reskin any of these and not call it the cthulhu mythos but um, if you want to have it in the game because either you want to do that kind of uh, genre play or you just want a very rich starting point of something that is not directly tied to a culture so you can really do whatever without really offending people in a certain way. I think it's kind of great for that. 
Understanding the mythos is generally at the direct cost of sanity. We do not get the idea that you can both be sane and understand the murky working of the mythos. And one way to represent this is if this is something within your paradigm or practices, they operate on principles beyond mortal understanding. Any characters that draw from it may need separate mythos abilities like mythos physics or mythos magic, which would essentially be a variant of esoterica or a variant of hyperscience. But if you're going to do an attribute plus ability role to aid magic, require Hiring someone to do uh, perception plus eldritch geometry makes perfect sense to me. So that is something that we also already kind of have in the game. I mean, what what really is is sanity as a cost for you know a minus one difficulty on correspondence effects? Really? Yeah. Come on, guys. That's what we're here for. <laughs> I also like the idea that the mythos entities may be the only ways of getting archspheres, or that you need to deal with one of their intermediaries or someone who has already gone through it. We get the idea that it is very hard to advance in magic without someone who shares your paradigm and practices to guide you. Um, Mythos entities may be some of the only ways to do that, and that can represent a true dark tug. Like one again, one of the things we don't give a lot of mechanical reasons why the Nefandi, why people would would join them. The mythos to me answers that in that they literally have that secret knowledge. They have impossible understanding, and maybe it is something that an avatar can internalize that kind of understanding, even if the mage themselves cannot. That is a fun interpretation of uh, the Avatar's inversion. It moves away from what it means to be human and rational and more towards these cosmic forces that we we literally cannot understand. Mm -hmm. And I think it can refocus the game in a very human direction. One of the things that Trail of Cthulhu also has is once you've encountered with the mythos that you have pillars of stability, you have things you can interact with to regain that sanity or return that stability and kind of uh, center yourself. And I think that is something mage should have. We don't have a hubris stat. We do have wisdom in New World of Darkness, uh, in Chronicles of Darkness. And the thing that you have in Delta Green that I like is after you've come in contact, once you've encountered the Chosho, literally spending a couple weeks with your dog and your, like, kids can really help. <laughs> now, I should... I should point out that the touchstones in Delta Green are also something that in the moment you can just burn your connection to them. So there is a there is a dark interpretation of this. So yeah, you can you can come home, you can spend time with your your dog and your kids, you can play or in the moment you can say my kids aren't that important to me in the face of all of this. Why why did I have kids? What if this is how the universe is? What have I done? And you can just burn your relation with your touchstones. And it's it's a tragedy when that happens. But mechanically, it's really good for you. Yeah. So they, they, they encourage you to do it because that's drama. And Mage doesn't have any of those mechanics, and I wish it did. I kind of wish it did sometimes, yeah. Unknown Armies also has a good idea of there being balancing mechanics that, yes, you can go this direction or that direction that we've spoken about before. So we've talked about a, f a few mechanical frameworks that you can use, a few ideas of how to use it in your game. We have the entire episode on Cosmicism if you're interested in exploring the theme of it. Any other thoughts on the mythos in Mage or things that Mage players can get from the mythos, Bryce? If you've enjoyed what we've done here today, I recommend picking up uh, some some Michael Shea stories. They're set not in the, the current modern world because Michael Shea wrote them 60 years ago, uh, but they might be more accessible than uh, the, the stuff that was written in the 20s and the 30s. If you're looking for, for, and I mean, there's always more mythos stories and authors out there. So yeah, Chaosium produces books full of just related fictional stories. 
set in all times, spaces, and anything you can imagine. So pick up some of their fiction if you're if you're interested. Well, Bryce, thank you so much for joining us. If we're interested in the other things we're doing that you're doing, where can we find out about it? You can find me regularly on uh, the Darker Days Radio podcast, which you can find at darker-days.org. And uh, you can join our Discord. We're on Facebook. We're on everything. Uh, we, we have a, a, a link tree, uh, which is uh, linktree.com slash darker days radio. You can go there for all of our links. Well, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. This has been Mage the Podcast, where if you were a great old one from Earth, we totally cheer for you against other great old ones. Don't eat me. Our executive producers include Jay Widener, Oracle of Havnatol, the Devouring Geyer, Joshua Hillerup, Oracle of Infinths, the Void Beyond Voids, Buck Gregory, Oracle of Govnagath, Barrier to Knowledge, Christopher Phillips, Oracle of Jepnathar, the austere portal, the crew of Erebus, Oracle of the Light of Perpetual Morning, and Mikhail, Oracle of Karen, living at 119 West Oak Lane. Don't get her angry. Thank you for your support. Additionally, I'd like to thank our executive producers, Alex, Alexia, Anders S., Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Bedurfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Boo, Boogers to the Sixth, Brad the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris B., Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Dan Svensson, David Roy, Derek Semsek, Dennis Osborne, Fraggle Rock, Gargan Lenoir, George Lara, Guy Conan Stewart, Ia Bull, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Briggs, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Julian Andes, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Prohl, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Morgan Aron, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Puka G, Rachel Grace, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Conley, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Our EP shoutout is to Daniel Cuppin. I mentioned this toward server that I was going to do a free verse beat poem about kickball, and here's what I was able to come up with using a random beat poem generator. This is Kickball by Slick Hamilton. Pay attention to the age at kickball. The verbal kickball is the most middle school court game of all impotent kickball. Does the sanguine kickball make you shiver? Does it? I can't help but stop and look at the witchy frisbee. Does the frisbee make you shiver? Does it? Why would you think the competitive cricket is large? The competitive cricket is the most little ornithopterous insect of all. Down, down, down into the dark of the competitive cricket. Gently it goes. The minuscule, the undersized, the runty. A verbal kickball, however hard it tries, will always be stuck in middle school. Verbal kickball, you dig. Does the kickball make you shiver? Does it? A frisbee, however hard it tries, will always be dour and done with the deeds of the day. Does the tearful frisbee make you shiver? Colonial crickets is, in its way, the boring summer of orthopterian delight. Chirp, says the colonial cricket, and chirp, then chirp again. Find yourself in silence, loser. Mage the Podcast is also available on YouTube. Search Mage the Podcast to see all of our episodes there. If you super like this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or Mage the Podcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash podcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. And remember to meet at the anointed time at Prolific Park to summon the aggregate entity which will be our only defense against Yagalanak. Bye. Here come the outtakes. I mean, at this point, I can't remember the last time I didn't see someone like shove Haster, the King in Yellow, into the mythos. He's so uh, hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take awards I didn't want to get for 600, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually remember 
where I was going with that. So uh, good job to me. And it inverts a bunch of the tropes of the Cthulhu world. And I may attempt to do an interview regarding that because I already have five pages of notes. And once I got five pages of notes, that's basically a made the podcast episode. I've gone through the entire back catalog and I wanted to do a column called Terry and Chaz talk about Ken and Robin talk about stuff. <laughs> it's just like this <laughs> retrospective. So I feel like this is the point where I'm surprised we've gotten this this far without like doing a pot shot at Durleth. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Durleth did a fantastic job. And I mean, the Cthulhu mythos would not exist today in, in, in the form that it does had it not been for August Durleth. He was not a fantastic author, but he did a fantastic job of getting H.P. Lovecraft's work and keeping it in print, forming a publishing house that also got other weird fiction authors into print. So thank you, August Erleth. Mm-hmm. And also did a wonderful thing on southern Wisconsin called the Sag Prairie Saga. Um, uh, but an absolute horrid mythos author. <laughs> Just absolute garbage. 